Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about some more of the weirdest deaths from throughout history. This, I mean, obviously we've done we've done this topic before. Keen listeners will remember episode 126. Get across it. But there are that many, there are that many weird deaths over the years that we can go for a second helping. Turns out that quite a lot of people have died over the years. Most people seem to uh, at one point or another, but uh, not everyone does it in a normal way you know some people aren't content to die at a ripe old age surrounded by friends and family no no they go out in uh, rather bloody more memorable ways as we'll see there's lots of grisly and gruesome stuff lined up for today you'll be pleased to hear lots of blood and guts although we're we're kind of light on the horrible murder to be honest we've got uh, what do we got we got beaten being eaten alive by insects we've got uh, being Beaten to death with prosthetic legs, uh, just like last time. We've got, uh, you know, someone behaving like an absolute turkey and dying while falling down the stairs. So we've got a lot to get across, of course. We always do. Um, just like last time, we've got 10 ridiculous deaths uh, to get across. Last time, we kind of did we did some honourable mentions and then got onto five fuller stories. But this time, we're giving equal attention to all 10 of them because they're all just that good. Before we begin, however... I want to say thank you uh, to alert listener John, who submitted some of these ridiculous deaths. That led me to research a bunch of others. Um, and here we are at this episode because of that. So thanks very much, John, old son. And uh, that's it. Here we go. Let's get underway. More of history's weirdest death. Let's get to it. For our first death here, we're going all the way back. We're going all the way back to 401 BCE. It's over 2,400 years ago, all the way back to ancient Persia. Now, I have to say, this, I mean, it happened that long ago. It is potentially apocryphal, this one. It is still debated today, this death. Uh, it might have just been made up, although it is mentioned in a couple of different sources here and there. So, so honestly, who knows? Um, but either way, we'll take it with a grain of salt. Uh, I'll tell you what, it is that bloody disgusting, however, that I thought I better include it. I better, I better include it, even if it might end up being apocryphal after all. Um, so back in Persia, 401 BC, there's a young soldier whose name is Mithridates, right? Or I don't know. Not, I assume it's not Mithridates, Mithridates. I don't know how to pronounce it. It doesn't matter. Um, and this young soldier, he ran afoul of Artaxerxes, right? Uh, Artaxerxes II, who's the, uh, the Persian king at the time. Now, Mithridates, he'd been cutting about, he'd been bragging about how he'd killed Artaxerxes' younger brother, Cyrus the Younger, right? Now, you might not be surprised to find out that Artaxerxes was pretty bloody pissed off that Mithridates had killed his brother. I mean, how dare you? It's not, a, it's not an unusual emotion to have after someone kills your brother. I mean, anger and, and resentment, scorn, all the rest of it, not, that's not surprising. But it wasn't out of a you know deep and abiding fraternal connection between the two or anything else like that that Artaxerxes was pissed off. No, no. Cyrus was a claimant to the Persian throne, and he was plotting to attack his brother for it. So Artaxerxes did want Cyrus dead. He was actually pleased he was dead, but it's that he wanted to be the one to kill him. So when young Mithridates is going about like the cock of the walk saying how he's the one that scragged this pretender, Artaxerxes isn't having it. He's actually taking it as an insult to his honour because he wanted to be the one to kill his own brother. So what does he do? He takes this young soldier, soldier Mithridates, and he condemns him to death, right? Just like that, sentencing him to the boats. 
Now, you sort of hear this is a death sentence, the boats. Okay, well, how bad could it be? You know, a little boating trip, maybe get marooned on a desert island, you eat coconuts and uh, have a great time for the rest of your life. No, no, not quite. Here's what being sentenced to the boats meant, right, according to a historian named Plutarch. Again, keep in mind, this might not have actually happened, but if it did, bloody hell, it is very disgusting. Have a listen to what, this is what Plutarch wrote about this, uh, about this alleged uh, occurrence. Here we go. <clears throat> the king decreed that Mithridates should be put to death in boats, which execution is after the following manner. Taking two boats framed exactly to fit and answer each other, they lay down in one of them the malefactor that suffers upon his back. So they've got two boats, they, you know, sort of like a clam, right? You put the bloke inside one of the boats, you put the, the other boat on top of it. Then, covering the first boat with the other, and so setting them together that the head, hands and feet of him are left outside, and the rest of his body lies shut up within, they offer him food. And if he refuses to eat it, they force him to do it by pricking his eyes. So he's locked up in the boats with his hands and hands, feet and head sticking out from outside where the boats are, and then they give him food. And if he doesn't eat, they're going to you know stick bloody pins or something into his eyes until he actually eats, right? So he's eating stuff. So so far, thinking, okay, well you're just trapped in some boats you're eating, so not too bad yet. Wait for it, because here it comes. Then after he has eaten, they drench him with a mixture of milk and honey, pouring it not only into his mouth but all over his face. They then keep his face continually turned towards the sun and it becomes completely covered up and hidden by the multitude of flies that settle on it. So now trapped in a boat, covered in milk and honey, you're full as a good food and now flies are coming to, you know, be all over you because of this, this, the milk and the honey that's been, you know, bloody drizzled all over you like a, like a, you know, like a a choice deserted buffet here, but it only gets worse. And, as within the boats, he does what those that eat and drink must needs do. Creeping things and vermin spring out of the corruption and rottenness of the excrement, and these entering into the bowels of him, his body is consumed. So that's why they made him eat and drink before he got in the boat, so he'd, you know, get on with his business inside there, and then all the, well, you know what's going on. When the man is manifestly dead, the uppermost boat being taken off, they find his flesh devoured, and swarms of such noisome creatures preying upon and, as it were, growing to his inwards. In this way, Mithridates, after suffering for 17 days, at last expired. So Mithridates was trapped between two boats, covered in milk and honey. Flies came and bloody, you know, had their way with him, especially after he was bloody crapping his dacks everywhere. And he lasted two and a half weeks before finally dying in this. I mean, imagine, imagine this as a form of torturous execution. And he's there for two and a half weeks being eaten alive by flies in his own bloody filth. Not a very nice way to go. Next up here, we've got uh, we've got a Roman emperor, a bloke named Valentinian the First. He's also known as Valentinian the Great. Although I tell you this, by the end of his life, he should have bloody been known as Valentinian, who just needs to chill out a little bit there, mate. Come on, because he had a furious temper, and this temper ended up being his uh, being, being the, you know what actually killed him. 
Valentinian, he started off in life uh, not as a politician, but as uh, as an army officer. He joined the Roman army in around 330 CE, although he ended up not faring too well initially. Uh, he got absolutely rumpa-dumped early on by the Alemanni king, uh, Chnodomarius, got sent home in disgrace. Ultimately, his career did recover, um, and he went on to, you know, be a little more, a little, a little more successful, a little more well respected as a as a general, um, to the point that right, so much so in, indeed that when the uh, imperial throne was empty, it became empty in uh, 364. Uh, a couple of other blokes refused; they declined the offer to become emperor. A couple of others were be- deemed bad choices. Valentinian was finally offered the position. He was on. He was actually on the list, and he accepted it readily. He really did. He went. He went straight into it. Uh, and as a seasoned campaigner with thirty years' experience in the military, uh, it won't come as a surprise to learn that he spent most of his time as emperor fighting wars all over the place. That was his biggest uh, his biggest priority as as emperor. Indeed, was just you know to go and bloody kick some more heads in. He campaigned in Gaul and the British Isles along the Rhine. He put down revolts in Africa. Generally, pretty effective emperor wielding his military as he did. But he seems to have had a bit of a temper on him, as I say, because, I mean, look, at one point um, when he was sent home uh, from the army in disgrace all those years ago, he was at a temple and a priest tried to uh, attend to him. And Valentinian turned at him, lost his temper and bloody belted the priest. He hit him and he said, I am not purified but defiled, apparently. And uh, he really didn't have much control over his, uh, over his temper there. And he was just a bit of a nasty piece of work more generally, you know, personally speaking, as a bloke. He, he really hated anyone who was cultured or well-educated and he was needlessly cruel, especially especially to servants. Uh, he would have his servants executed on a whim. Uh, he would throw them to his two pet bears, which were named, this is not a joke, his pet bears were named Innocence and Golden Camel. So he really had no chill. He's chucking his servants to the bears. He's he's bloody going around, starting wars all over the place. And uh, his lack of chill is, believe it or not, ultimately what killed him because his temper got the better of him in a, in a very final sense in, uh, in 375 CE. Valentinian, he was having some issues with people known as the Quadi, right? They lived along the Danube River. So he heads over there. He starts showing them who's boss, sending in the army, crushing the opposition, looting, pillaging, all the rest of it, really a display of dominance. And eventually the Quadi go, all right, mate, settle down. You know, we'll, we'll try, we'll, we're going to sue for peace here. So they sent some they sent some envoys to, to Valentinian to try to sort it out and figure out what the terms of this peace agreement are going to be. So they're going to, you know, stop having their teeth fed to them by the Romans here. Anyway, they end up sorting out a lot more than a peace agreement here as well, because as they, you know, they went and met this, uh, met the Roman emperor, these, these, uh, uh, these envoys, and they had a chat and they sort of accepted the peace terms that Valentinian put in front of them. But after they'd signed this peace deal, they actually decided they were going to speak their minds, these envoys. They were going to have a crack at him, which doesn't seem to be a very wise thing to do, having a go at this bloke who's famous for his temper in charge of, you know, a, huge, a, a military superpower at this point. But still, that's what they did. They told him, they told Valentini exactly what they thought of the whole situation, how unfair it was, you know, chucked in a couple of choice words about him as well. And as you can imagine... Valentinian didn't like this, not one bit, not at all. He flew right off the handle. He lost his infamous temper. He starts bellowing at him in absolutely furious tongue lashing. He's giving him bloody hell. He's absolutely giving him what for, right? He got so angry with these envoys that as he's bloody screaming and yelling at him, he ended up having a stroke. And while he was while he was standing the yelling, he lost his temper. At that point, he's going that mental that he had a stroke and it killed him. This bloke got that worked up while he was yelling and screaming at these envoys that he keeled over and 
died. Imagine that. But, you know, for Valentinian fans out there, at least there is, you can take a little bit of solace from the fact that he did die doing what he loved. From one emperor to another here, uh, we're going to keep going and have a chat about Basil I, who was a Byzantine emperor, and he died in 886. Now, Basil, very interesting fella. He was born as a peasant, if you'll believe it, but uh, worked his way up to become emperor, like like any good Byzantine emperor, through plotting and scheming and killing and murdering and assassinating, whatever else, all the way to the top of the heap. He, he married the mistress of the reigning emperor, Michael III, uh, was named co-emperor, and then took advantage of the unpopularity of Michael III, had him assassinated, and became emperor in his own right so he didn't have to share power. Now, honestly, these bloody Byzantines, at the best of times, they sound like Sith lords. I wouldn't be, tr- I would never trust one of them. But by the end, once the dust is settled, Basil I, he's large, he's in charge, and he reigned for 19 years after getting rid of Michael III, and was generally very well liked. He seemed to have done a very good job as emperor, especially for someone who was, you know, born into the peasantry, was never properly educated or anything else like that. He got stuck into the uh, to the business of politicking with both hands. He wrote a bunch of laws, built a bunch of buildings, and of course, fought a bunch of wars. Uh, although some of these wars didn't go too well. The Byzantine Empire lost control of Sicily to Muslim invaders, thanks to some military mismanagement on Basil's parts. But still, the empire's power and influence spread under Basil I, particularly across the Mediterranean, And so he did an all right job. But then, in 886, death, which comes for us all, obviously, did come for Basil I in very remarkable circumstances. He's off one day hunting, right? And uh, he spotted a deer, right? So as you go, go give chase to the deer, you're going to try to bring it home for your supper. Beautiful, very good, right? But as he's off hunting this deer, its antlers somehow get tangled in his belt, now, I don't know how this happened. The, the very light on the sources to... I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on, you know, hunting in the early medieval era, but at some point, somehow, right, this emperor's got his belt tangled up in the deer's antlers. And the deer obviously then tried to flee at top speed and did so, dragging the Byzantine emperor, who was still tangled up in the antlers, along with it for 25 kilometres through the forest. Now, you won't be surprised to learn that, you know, old mate Basil, he's not in very good nick after this, after being dragged 25 clicks through the through through the woodland. And due to all of his injuries and just how, you know, badly beaten up he was, he died of a fever shortly after he was rescued. But it gets a little better because before he died, one of the last things that he did was put to death the bloke who had rescued him from the deer. One of his attendants had come up to him, you know, once this deer was tied out or whatever, maybe just dropped over, dropped over dead after dragging an, an emperor 25 kilometres. I don't know. Anyway, eventually one of his hunting attendants came up, found him and got out a knife and, and cut him loose from this deer, cut his belt. And Basil decided, I mean, as you would, right? Takes one to no one. Basil decided that this bloke was in on a murder plot that had failed. I don't know if the International Guild of Assassins is hiring deer operatives to tangle, you know, emperors up in their belts and drag them through the forest, but Basil was sure that this had been the result of a murder plot against him, and so he executed the bloke who had found him and cut him loose from the deer just for good measure, just one more execution on the way out before he himself also finally died. 
The next unfortunate figure here is a bloke whose name was Humayon. He was born as Nasiruddin Muhammad, but uh, particularly after the death of his dad, Babur, he was known as Humayun and uh, is known to history as the second emperor of the mighty Mughal Empire. Now, you may have heard of the Mughal Empire. as it's, uh, At its peak, it stretched all the way from modern-day India all the way across to Afghanistan. But at this stage in history, it's a little, little smaller, very early days here. Humayun inherited a realm from his old man, you know, Babur, the first uh, Mughal Empire emperor. He inherited a realm that was uh, unstable. It was fractured. It was splintered. It was not yet under the. F- it was not yet under firm imperial control here. And so Humayun spent the first ten years of his uh, of his reign, essentially trying to unify and consolidate this young empire, travelling from you know one end of it all the way across to the other to put down revolts, negotiate with nobles, do whatever he could to try to keep the peace and make sure that his reign was uh, was a secure one. But it just wasn't. Because it all became too much for him to, to, you know, there were too many plates for him to keep spinning. And he ended up being overthrown by a general whose name was Sher Shah. Now, this bloke, very interesting fellow, might be worth an episode one day in his own right. Brilliant strategist, reformed the Mughal Empire. He introduced the rupee as its currency. And in just five years of being in charge of the empire, he did a lot of what Humayun couldn't in terms of consolidating power. Anyway, once Sher Shah seized power, Humayun was sent into exile. But he didn't give up hope of reclaiming his lost realm. He gathered what forces he could, and he slowly but surely conquered his way back into the Mughal Empire, starting out in modern-day Afghanistan, you know, working his way, capturing cities like Kabul, Lahore, whatever else through Pakistan, and then into uh, into modern-day India. And Shur Shah, right, he didn't stick around for a long time, as I say, just five years. He died in 1545, and this certainly helped Humayun in his campaign to become emperor again. As I say, captured Afghanistan, captured Pakistan, worked his way across into India, and then at last, right, by 1555, Humayun finally gained control, regained control, I should say, of the Mughal Empire. Shur Shah's heirs, they were all too busy fighting each other to stand up to Humayun. And finally, when uh, the returning emperor captured the city of Delhi in 1555, he finalised his reclamation of the empire. But, as you might have guessed, it wasn't to last, was it? Because just, I mean, around six months after this victory, six months after taking his throne back, he was dead. And how? Because he fell down some stairs. Check this out, right? Humayun, devoted Muslim. And as such, he prayed uh, five times a day, as Muslims do. And he was that, you know, bloody religious. He was that devoted to his, uh, to his faith that whenever the call to prayer came, the Adhan, right, was whenever it was called, he would drop whatever he was doing and he would pray wherever he was, whatever he was doing, whenever the time came, he'd drop everything and start praying. And unfortunately for him, one day, the Adhan, you know, comes over when he was walking down a flight of stairs from a library carrying an armful of books. So he hears the muezzin, you know, bloody yelling out, time to pray, you blokes, let's go. He immediately drops his books, immediately goes to kneel down on the stairs. And I don't know if you've ever tried to kneel down on stairs. It's not a very easy thing to do. And it was made even harder by the fact that as he knelt, his foot got caught in his robes and he lost his balance. He toppled over, fell down the stairs, cracked his head open on one of them, and that was that for him. He never recovered. He took. A, he was taken away for rest and treatment, as seen to by doctors. But he died three days after this accident. He, he, he never recovered. And, you know, after a lifetime fighting for this throne, once he finally had it secured, he died after falling down some stairs. Poor bugger. Although, although, 
His son, right, Akbar the Great, went on to become the, uh, the emperor and went on to entrench the power of the Mughal Empire as a, as a secular, culturally integrated and, and rather liberal realm here that really did stick around for a long, long time across several centuries. So after, you know, spending his entire life fighting to secure the empire, Humayun's death wasn't in vain for the empire that he fought so hard for because it really did rise to prominence thanks to the early accession of his son. Next one, here's a very quick one. Uh, a fellow named Arthur Aston, right? He died in 1649 in very strange circumstances indeed. He was a, he was an English army officer. He fought for Charles I during the English Civil War, but eventually met his end while fighting in Ireland against Oliver Cromwell uh, during the siege of, Dra- of Drogheda. Now, before the English Civil War, you know, he was just a career soldier, this bloke, Arthur Aston. He fought in places like Poland and Sweden, but in 1642, he ended up fighting back in his native England. The interesting thing about this, however, fighting for the Royalists as he did, is that he was a Catholic. He fought on behalf of the Royalists and Charles I despite being a Catholic, and probably because he was a Catholic, he wasn't very well liked. I mean, not just because he was a Catholic in fairness, he was also a strict disciplinarian, didn't inspire much affection from the troops that were under his command. Anyway, he's going around, you know, trying to uh, trying to secure the, the reign of Charles I. Um, during the war, he ended up losing a leg. Uh, in 1644, he fell off a horse. Clumsy thing to do. Uh, and he injured his leg so badly that it had to be amputated. And he went for the rest of his life with a wooden prosthetic as a, as a result. He went around with a wooden leg. Um, and it would be this prosthetic that ultimately caused the rest of his life to be a, probably a little shorter than he would have liked. Anyway, he's sent to Ireland eventually. And in 1649, he's in command of Drogheda, town in Ireland, port town. Uh, before long, Cromwell and his army, they turn up. They're knocking at the door as part of their conquest of Ireland. And uh, the siege of Drogheda begins, and it goes very well for the parliamentarians. It fell to the Cromwellian army, and Cromwell's men, uh, i tell you this, they were none too gentle with the prisoners that they took, which included Aston. These soldiers, right, they are keen, as anything, for loot and for plunder and for the spoils of war. They craved the riches and the booty that so often came with successful campaigning. So much so that when they've got these prisoners, they're bloody, you know, roughhousing them around, treating them none too well. They decide, you know, rich military officer like uh, like Aston, he's bound to have a fortune on him. Where might he be hiding it? They convince themselves that Aston was hiding a fortune inside his prosthetic leg. They decided that it was full of hidden gold coins. And so they took Aston, they, you know, roughed him up a bit, and they ordered him to show them how to access the secret compartment that, uh, you know, the supposed riches that were hidden inside his prosthetic. And Aston obviously denied that there he denied there being any gold inside it, and the soldiers didn't believe him. They started beating him with his own leg, trying to you know torture a, 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 an answer out of him here, and they didn't stop beating him with his own wooden leg until he was dead. Poor Arthur Aston, beaten to death with his own wooden leg, just because these soldiers thought that he used it as a wallet. And there is not a scrap of evidence to suggest that he ever did either. Francois Vertel suffered a very unfortunate and very unnecessary death in 1671. He died, if you'll believe it, 
because a couple of wagon loads of fish were late to a party. That is what killed him, believe it or not. Vettel was a very famous chef. He was known particularly for his pastries. His skills and reputation as a master chef eventually saw him become the major domo for a bloke named Nicolas Fouquet, who was the finance minister of the French King Louis the, uh, Louis the Fourteenth. Now, uh, Vartel is often credited with the, inv- much, amongst much else, you know, part, as, as part of his, his reputation as, as this historical master chef, he's, he's often credited with the invent- invention of Chantilly cream, which is basically just sweet whipped cream. It's not true. He did use it. He put it to good use in his spectacular dishes, particularly his pastries, as I'm saying. But his greatest reputation generally, you know, well, his greatest legacy known for this, not, not necessarily true, although he was certainly known as a, a very, very famous cook, very famous chef indeed. And he was so good at his job, in fact, that he got um, he ended up getting one of his employers in trouble. In uh, 1661, uh, Vettel, he, as I say, he's working away for Fouquet, uh, in charge of a great big party for this bloke, a huge, opulent, lavish affair. It was basically a housewarming party, I guess a chateau warming party. Fouquet, uh, Fouquet was just opening up his new chateau. And Vettel did such a good job of putting on this party, this incredible party, that Louis XIV already didn't like Foucault very much. He used it as an excuse to lock him up and eventually execute him. He accused him of embezzling funds and deliberately embarrassing the king with these great, you know, great big displays of opulence. And this party was one of the excuses used to actually get rid of this troublesome, uh, troublesome, troublesome minister that he had. Now, the death of his employer didn't prove as too much of a setback for Vettel, however, because his reputation was ironclad at this point. He was very well known, very famous indeed. And he quickly got another job, this time as the major domo of Prince Louis II de Bourbon Conde, right? He worked for the Grand Conde uh, very successfully indeed for, for about a decade until 1671, which was, of course, the year that he finally met his end. In April 1671, Vettel was charged with another huge, opulent, enormous, grand, lavish ball or a banquet, right? Huge big party that's taking place. About 2,000 people are going to turn up uh, and celebrate here in, in honour of Louis Fourteenth. He would be visiting uh, the Grand Condo Chateau. And this party was happening in two weeks, right? That's how much notice that Vettel had to put on it. Well, I'll tell you this. He's rushed. He's stressed out of his mind, everything else. But he is a consummate professional and he went about making preparations but it all started going wrong. I mean, he is tearing his hair out with stress, this bloke, trying to put on this enormous big party, this banquet. But it all went wrong for him. Two days before the main event, there was a smaller sort of preliminary feast, a warm-up, you know, and there wasn't enough roast meat to go around to all of the tables. So two of the tables, they actually missed out on the roast, and Vatel he broke down. He wept. He was, he was sure that his reputation and his honour as a chef and as a major domo were forever destroyed. He couldn't bear the shame. But the Grand Condé's employer came and said, "Mate, it's all right. I've spoken to the king. He's still very impressed with the, with the, you know what you, the spread you put on. So don't worry about it. Gives him a pat on the back, picks him up, says, "Listen, you're going to be okay. Get back into the kitchens. Off you go, because we've got the big we got the big show. It's coming a couple of days later." But of course, I mean, say it with me. It only got worse from there. That evening, a thick fog settled over the chateau, which ruined the planned fireworks display that Vettel had organised. And he's so he's 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 beside himself at this point. He's going around absolutely despondent, tearing his hair out. Can't believe what a disaster it all. He's he's absolutely beside himself. And then the next day, right, the day before the royal banquet, this big two thousand person affair. Vettel, he's again, he's racing about making all the last minute preparations, trying to make sure everything's ready, checking and double checking everything he has to get done. 
And then a bloke arrives with two wagon loads of fish for the feast, right? Now Vettel goes, oh, thank goodness, here's the fish. Excellent. He goes out. I've been waiting for this. So he goes out to the bloke driving the wagons. He, he comes out to the supplier and he, he looks at these two wagon loads of fish and he goes, is that all, right? And the bloke says, yep, yep, there's all the fish I got here. And that was, it was all the fish that he, this supplier, had brought. He didn't realise that Vettel was asking if there were more fish coming, he thought that it was only two wagon loads of fish. But this bloke was saying, no, no, this is the fish that I've brought. Vettel thought that he was saying that that is all the fish that is coming in total. And Vettel, I mean, you know, thinking that the supplier was confirming that there was there was only to be these two cartloads of fish and no more, nowhere near enough for the 2,000-person banquet, it was too much for him. It was too much for, this, for the already overwrought major domo, mortified by the thought that there wouldn't be enough fish for everyone at the banquet. He went inside, he got his sword, he ran to his chambers, and he impaled himself, committing suicide. This poor bloke, so committed to his craft that he couldn't bear the thought of disgracing himself in front of the king and his employer and would quite literally rather die than do so. Which makes it all the more tragic when his body was discovered by the staff at the chateau as they came to find him to inform him that some more supplies had just arrived at the chateau and with them, the rest of the fish. You might have heard of Molière, the famous French actor uh, born as Jean-Baptiste Poquelin. Today, he is regarded as one of the finest French playwrights from history, particularly famous for his uh, for his comedies. Now, this bloke, he was born into wealth. Uh, he enjoyed a first-rate education before eventually becoming an actor. And and far from being a starving artist or anything else like that, he was he was very wealthy. He was very successful, very famous. He was a star in his own right. And while uh, during his acting career, while he was while he was acting, he also started to write plays himself. And I'll tell you what, they did very well. They captured the attention of people like, uh, I mean, people like Louis XIV himself, the very same uh, French king that uh, Vettel had been so worried about disappointing with the, the lack of fish. And royal patronage uh, was obviously very beneficial for Molière's career. He's off and away. He wrote and performed plays for King Louis XIV and, and, the, and the rest of the royal family. And enjoyed a lot of success as a result, but he didn't rest on his laurels and he didn't take it easy. Oh, no, no, no. Much like Valette, he ran himself ragged with dedication to his craft, which had a very negative impact on his health. I'll tell you this. He wasn't a well man as it was. He had pulmonary tub- uh, tuberculosis, the poor bugger, and uh, working himself so hard did nothing to make it better. Despite taking some, you know, almost forced breaks from acting, uh, his health only got worse as the years went on, and he ended up quite literally working himself to death. In 1673, he put on what would be his final play, which was uh, known as, well, which was called The Imaginary Invalid, uh, in which he, uh, he played the role of a bloke named Argon, right, who was a hypochondriac. Well, while he was performing this role, while he was performing this play on the on the 17th of February in 1673, Molière collapsed. Halfway through the play, he collapsed and he started coughing up blood. This proved this fit of coughing that went on for quite a while, it proved to be from an internal hemorrhage. But I mean, as they say, the show must go on. And go on it did. Molière, after, you know, hacking up a half a lung and, and a, a litre of blood, 
he stood back up and he continued the performance. He was the opposite of a hypochondriac as well. He wasn't anything like the character he was playing because he did manage to finish the entire play. But as soon as he did, he collapsed once again, coughed up even more blood from an even bigger hemorrhage, and he died shortly thereafter. I mean, you hear about the dedication that some actors have to their work, but Moliere, mate, I mean, just take the night off. My goodness. Anyway, even today, there's a superstition amongst actors uh, left over from the time of Moliere. There's a superstition that the colour green is unlucky for those in the acting, uh, acting industry. And apparently it comes from the death of Moliere, who, as he laid there, you know, coughing up blood halfway through his last performance, was, of course clothed in green. Another quick one here, a king who quite literally ate himself to death. Adolf Frederick, the King of Sweden. He was the King of Sweden between 1751 and 1771. And he seems to have been, as far as kings go, ah, he was an all right one, I suppose. He, he was a fair bit absolutist than many other monarchs of the time. And, and during his reign, Sweden enjoyed internal peace and several important, very progressive reforms. For instance, uh, the Freedom of the Press Act, well ahead of its time in allowing, well, I mean, I mean, a lot of freedom to the press, just what it says on the tin. But very unusual for the time that it came in, you know, in the, in the mid to late uh, 18th century there. Although I have to say, Frederick himself, he wasn't much more than a figurehead, really. He was a, he was a constitutional monarch, and he was a bit weak-willed. He didn't, I mean, any attempts he made to regain any kind of absolutist power, they were rebuffed by the Swedish, Swedish estates, the people who really ran the country. But by all accounts, you know, Adolf Frederick, he was a nice bloke, family man, kind to his staff and his servants, and enjoyed, of all things, he enjoyed his little hobby, making snuff boxes. But I tell you this, the other thing he bloody loved when he wasn't making his snuff boxes, the other thing he loved was food. And it proved to be the end of him. He liked his food a little too much, it turned out. On the 12th of February in 1771, it was Shrove Tuesday, as it's known. It's the uh, it's a celebration, a, a festival, the last chance for uh, Christians, right, to stuff their faces before fasting for Lent. Another, another you know, religious festival that they, uh, that they, they undergo there, supposed to give up, you know, food, luxuries, whatever else. So Adolf Frederick, right, on Shrove Tuesday, heading into Lent, he used this as an excuse, as so many people did back then, have a great big feast. Absolute huge blowout, a feast that was quite literally fit for a king. He's getting, he's, you know, he's getting on the lobster, he's getting on the caviar, sucking back the champagne, he's chucking food down his throat like he's bloody Tarah, mate, episode 65, get across it. And then, once all the main courses are done, once all the lobster and caviar and everything else has been taken away, out come the desserts, mate. It's And it's his favourite as well, semla, a Swedish dessert known as semla. Little sweet rolls served uh, served to uh, to Adolf Frederick. Hot milk, cinnamon, raisins, absolutely delicious. He's, he can't get enough of them. And uh, when I say that, I mean, I, you know, he really did go to town on them. He went a bit mentally. He had 14 servings of the dessert, 14 servings of semla, if you'll believe it. And surprisingly immediately began to experience a bit of digestive distress. This bloke literally ate himself to death. After eating such an enormous meal, right, he died the very same day. And in doing so, really did prove that you can have too much of a good thing. But there is a silver lining. 
at least he didn't have to give up anything for Lent. Clement Verlandinger lived a, um, how can we say this diplomatically? He lived a an interesting life, shall we say. But I'll tell you this, he had an even more interesting death. Uh, while working as a lawyer, he was defending a client on a murder charge. He accidentally shot himself while showing how the victim of the alleged murder might have also accidentally done so, ac- accidentally shot himself as well, which obviously would make it a suicide rather than a murder. And his demonstration was so successful that he ended up dying as a result of showing how the victim may have done. An interesting legal tactic. Uh, we've had a few people, you know, very dedicated to their jobs today, and here's another one, it would seem. Anyway, Volandingham, he, he was an American. He was born in Ohio. He grew up to enter politics before the American Civil War as a congressman. And unfortunately, he was pro-slavery. He was opposed to the idea that, you know, the federal government had the power to regulate things like slavery. And uh, at the outbreak of the uh, of, of the Civil War, this ultimately saw him exiled to the Confederate States of America, from where he fled to Canada, to then run remotely for the governor of Ohio. He actually won the Democratic nomination for governor as well, although he, he ended up losing the actual election in absolute landslide. But even in exile, he maintained his his anti you know his outspoken anti abolitionist position. He went so far as to get involved in a, consp- a Confederate conspiracy to overthrow the governments of Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, and Kentucky. Um, so I guess in short, you could say he was just a real nasty nasty piece of work. He really was. And even after the war ended, he opposed any semblance of equality for African Americans. Anyway. He ended up in Ohio um, years later where he worked as a lawyer, as I said, and it was while he was working as a lawyer that he died. He was defending a client accused of murder, a bloke named Thomas McGinn, and McGinn was supposed to have shot uh, another fella named Tom Myers, uh, shot him in the guts during a barroom brawl. Now, while meeting with other defence lawyers, right, Valandingham, uh, he suggested that maybe Myers might have actually shot himself instead. While he was, like, pulling out, fumbling for his pistol, he might have shot himself in the guts. It wasn't McGinn who shot him. It was actually himself. And he wanted to demonstrate how this might have happened. So Valandingham, he picked up a pistol, which he didn't think was loaded. I'll let you guess whether it was or wasn't. He put it in his pocket. And then he began to reenact what might have happened during the brawl. So while attempting to draw the pistol, he got it caught in his clothing, you know, just as Myers could have. And then shot himself in the stomach with it. Again, just as Myers could have. I mean, obviously, as I say, he didn't think the pistol was loaded. Turns out it was. And he was rewarded for this demonstration with incontrovertible proof that their line of defence was feasible. It was provably, you know, a a, a possibility. You could indeed shoot yourself to death while fumbling to draw a pistol. Exhibit A, you know, I will refer you to my dead colleague. uh, Valandingham, he was seen to by doctors. It was no good. He died of his wounds the next day. But, I mean, no sense wasting his little experiment. I guess the other lawyers were able, I mean, they were able to go to the courtroom and they said, well, uh, you know, look, we actually tested this ourselves. and, And it turns out... McGeehan was duly acquitted of the murder charge. The defence had, after all, proven that Myers could have shot himself in the way that they described, and they backed it up with pretty undeniable evidence.
Finally, I want to tell you the story of Frank Hayes. Frank Hayes died in 1923. He was just 22 years old. Very uh, tragically short life, uh, you'll agree. Um, but even today, he holds the rather dubious honour of being the only person ever in history to win a horse race while dead. Hayes was born in Ireland. He emigrated to the US and found work there as an equestrian trainer and as a stable hand. Now, he wasn't ordinarily a jockey, but for whatever reason, he was picked to ride a horse called Sweet Kiss at a steeplechase race at Belmont Park Racecourse on Long Island in New York State. And I'll tell you this, at this race, he did a bloody good job of it too. Sweet Kiss cruised into first, described by the papers that reported on the event as being cleverly handled by Hayes. Which is quite an accomplishment, considering that he suffered a fatal heart attack halfway through the race and just died there on the back of the horse. Somehow his corpse stayed on horseback, I suppose it's, I, mean, I suppose it's not hard to ride a horse after all, right through to the end of the race and no one realised that the poor bastard was dead until they rushed up to him to congratulate him on his victory. It's thought that he died thanks to the, 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 the strenuous work that he'd done to, to lose enough weight, to make weight for the race. It's, apparently, he'd had to lose a fair few kilos. He wasn't in good nick, wasn't in good health. And uh, obviously, you know, thundering down the paddock there on the back of the horse took it out of him, and that's why, that's why he ended up carking it. But, I mean, they say victory at all costs, right? But I reckon Frank Hayes might disagree. He... he Gave his life to win the race and as such is still remembered to history as the only jockey to have won a race while dead. But I know the question that you're asking because it is the same question that I had and I did some research. I dug through the papers that reported on this event all the way back in 1923, nearly 100 years ago. And exalted listener, I can confirm to you that for the rest of its days, the horse did in fact go on to become known as Sweet Kiss of Death. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. Those are 10 more of history's weirdest deaths. And I tell you what, if you're expecting a part three... You don't have to hold your breath. It's going to come your way uh, before very much longer, I would have thought, because there are plenty of other weird and, and incredible ways that people have died over the years. And it's very good fun to get across them, I'll tell you that much. So thank you once again to John for uh, for sending a couple of these my way. It was great to get stuck into this as a topic once again. If you've come across any weird deaths or anything else like I mean, any, look, any kind of weird history is always... Uh, is always uh, fantastic to uh, to read through and, and everything else like that. So if you want to get in touch with the show, of course, I'll do all the boring housekeeping stuff here. Actually, quick, before because I know a lot, a lot of people tune out and don't listen to this bit. If you could listen to just this one here, because um, I want to talk about merch, right? So just bear with me for this one. Halfhousehistory.net, contact form there, patreon.com, sign up, benefits, whatever, right? Merch is just around the corner. New merch launching November, Okay. It is, I'm putting together details of what the merch uh, is going to look like, what sort of stuff we're looking at, right? Here are some options. We've got t-shirts. We've got all sorts of apparel, actually. There's jumpers, hoodies, all sorts of stuff. Baby onesies, if you want that, right? I don't know exactly what I'm going to open it up to, and I need to know. What sort of merch do you want to see? Phone cases are an option. Uh, Stickers, magnets, they're back on the agenda. We've got notebooks. We could have mugs, pillows, tote bags, um, 
pins. There's all sorts of stuff that could be available. I need to know not only what you want, but what do you want on it, right? Would you buy a T-shirt that said blood and guts and horrible murder on it? What are some ideas that you've got for merch? If you've got good ideas, I'll just make it into merch that you can then buy, right? Here are some good news about what's coming up with the merch. It is probably going to be a bit cheaper, which is excellent. Um, There is going to be a lot more flexibility in terms of uh, designs, what you can order, obviously a greater expanded product line. And uh, I'm hoping as well there's going to be a lot less hassle. This is just an upside for me personally, Uh, not so much for you. Going to be a lot less hassle when it comes to organizations, shipping, all that sort of stuff, which means probably you'll get your stuff faster rather than me forgetting to send it to you. And, you know, you get get it a couple of weeks later than you were hoping to. So please let me know. Halfhousehistory at gmail.com. Send in your ideas. Go to the website. Use the contact form. Any kind of idea for what you might like to have on a T-shirt? Do you just want Herodotus in sunglasses? Do you want a quote from the show? Would you buy a mug that said, and it only got worse from there on it, halfhousedhistory.net? I need to know because I want to make merch that... I'm not... I'm not making merch to make money. Let me put it that way. I want to make merch to to create things that listeners of this podcast want to have, right? So I don't want to make merch that I'm going to like. I want to make merch that you are going to like. So if you have an idea, if you have a clever idea that you think you and other fans of the show are going to like, please let me know. Don't leave it up to me. I'm not going to make good choices. Well, I might make fine choices, but... This merch is for you, the listener. I need to know what you, the listener, actually want. So please get in touch. Please let me know what you want. Um, I'm going to try to get... I mean, no, not even try. Guarantee. Right now, I guarantee. The merch shop will be back reopened, uh, full as a goog of all sorts of new stuff, November, right? So look forward to that. You can get your Christmas shopping done at halfhousedhistory.net, bloody merchandise shop whenever it comes up. There'll probably be a new address for it. I'll figure all that out. November, please get in your ideas. Time's running out. I want to get this merch off the shelves. Let's go. Anyway... That's that for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Of course, send in your topic ideas. No, no, bugger topic ideas, merch ideas. That's what I'm looking for at the moment. And I'll catch you over next week for more half House History. Until then, leaving you, of course, with a death-related question here that comes to us from Reddit. comes to us from Reddit user Novacryi with two Ys, who asks, why do some people talk about their near-death experiences, but there are never people talking about their full-death experiences? Mm-hmm.